0: Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast Extras. In this previously unreleased extra, we find out what happens when Dennis is done talking technical and the Computex conversation goes on. I'm your host, Darren McCain. With me, I have Dennis Garcia. Now, for me, as you know, I am a bit of a obsessive about my peripherals, and there were some entertaining peripherals One especially got some press in the mouse land, which was the Patriot mouse. But I know you saw several mice and keyboards. Anything that stood out to you?
1: Rocket. Oh, yeah. And I'm a
0: huge fan of the Rocket.
1: Yeah, so the Rocket had the Myth mouse, which is basically an evolution of all of their previous mice. Nice. But then they added the MMO-style buttons onto the side, um, which I don't necessarily like those. And when I started, they went through their demonstration. Turns out that you can disable, enable, bind, combine any of those buttons in any combination you want.
0: Now, again, listeners may know that I'm a bit of a rocket obsessive also because I love the feel of their cone-style mice. And it looked like from the pictures that the pattern was very similar on the thumb, only there was a double layer. So maybe six buttons for the thumb, give or take.
1: There was three rows by four buttons. So wow. 12 buttons. And every one of those buttons in the software, you could map to a feature. You could disable it completely. Or if you wanted to have a larger button, you could combine the two buttons to, or two or three or four buttons together and assign that to a feature. (laughs)
0: Well, that would come in handy for those of us like myself that tend to flop around looking for that knife button in
1: Battlefield. Where is it? Strangely enough, I took a picture of the software because they had a Battlefield macro that would remap all the buttons based off of Battlefield.
0: Another thing long overdue. I mean, it hasn't been that long since you could just download profiles for lots of different games, and lately the industry's kind of lagged behind. They'll give you so much programming, but you're kind of on your own. Even though you can save and load and trade profiles, there just hasn't been a great forum for it. So kudos to Rocket for making that possible.
1: Yeah. The best part about the the whole button thing, they're going to give away the 3D printing design (laughs) so that you can 3D print your own buttons to put onto the site.
0: Wow. Now that's almost a game changer by itself. I know that Well, let's face it, nobody really has a 3D printer because there's not a great excuse to have one. Nope. But a lot of people have access to them and they just don't know it because libraries have them. There are workshops where you can go use them. So I just can't even express how excited I am to see one of these mice because they're never perfect. They just aren't. I mean, that's how things like the rat mouse make a living. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to say, hey, I'd like this to be tilted a different direction or be concave or convex and for just pennies and a little bit of time make it happen. That's amazing to me. There hasn't been a configuration of customization like this
1: really ever. You mentioned the Patriot mouse, which had the dual scroll wheels, which I thought was a little weird.
0: (laughs) Now that one got a little bit of press and I confess that it reminded me a bit of the old Raven mouse.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. A little bit of that.
0: Yeah. So just for those folks that haven't Looked at the Raven mouse in a while. It's a review we have out there. Mm-hmm. It had a, dare we call it a scroll wheel on the side, which was really interesting, but it just kind of panned out as a bit awkward.
1: Yeah, it was in the wrong place. Much like uh, some of the buttons on the Rocket mouse. So like if you have all 12 buttons enabled, you can't pick it up <laughs> with your thumb. But with the Patriot mouse and also the Rocket mouse, you can change the panels on the side. So you can have it as a wide panel or a short panel to match your hand. Oh, that's cool. So they're a bit customizable in that regard.
0: So tell me, what do the two mouse wheels do? Uh, you know, I,
1: I, I don't
0: remember. Seems like we should just back away.
1: <laughs> no, I, the the two ma- wheels uh, they can be mapped independently, so you can have one scroll up, one scroll sideways, stuff like that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, or you could have it scroll through weapons, and you know, it's programmable, so it's kind of nice in that regard. I
0: do see the advantage, but I think. You know, what we're seeing is the maturation of the mouse market, mm-hmm. once again, is is leading to people to just try to find ways to differentiate. And who knows? Maybe it catches on, even in a niche, can be enough to make some of these uh, designs very successful.
1: Speaking of niche designs and successful mice and keyboards, I ran into two companies on the final day that I went to the show. One of them was uh, a keyboard and mouse company called Bloody. Ooh, that's a new name. Well, I've taken pictures of their booth before, but I've not really gone in to talk to them until this year because I got a tip that they had a new keyboard and mouse design
0: oh, that was okay. using
1: optical switches.
0: Oh, now that is interesting. I'm trying to picture how that would work. Do tell.
1: Okay, so you know how a mechanical switch works from like Cherry or something like Oh, that. sure. So it has its own little spring and resistance profile based off of the color that still makes a physical electrical connection at the PCB to let you know that you've pressed that key. Sure, hence
0: the mechanical description.
1: Right. The bloody switches are infrared. So they have an infrared sensor under each one of the of the key switches and when you press the key down it breaks the beam and then sends a signal to say you pressed this key.
0: Interesting.
1: Aside from you know, obvious wear and tarnish and stuff like that happening in the electrical connections, they're also faster. They had a a little demo set up where you press, they had a bar between a mechanical switch and their optical switch, and if you press right in the middle, it would display on the screen how fast the switch was. So you could see in milliseconds of pressing the key and how much faster it was than the other one. Well, that's clever. Yeah. So the other company, though, that I found... They had an IR switch or an optical switch that was very similar, except that instead of it breaking the beam, it registered distance. So you could tell if you only press the key halfway.
0: I see where this is going. Pressure sensitive control.
1: Yeah. That's cool too. And so this company that what they were selling was a complete manufacturing. So they, they license the switch. They have the patent on the switch. They'll take, um, ODM designs, and then build the products and then send them back out the door based off the manufacturer's specifications.
0: Well, I have to admit it's nice to see something that's innovative besides creative lighting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of, the, these switches, they're completely optical. They register distance, so you can program them to activate at like a half press or activate at a full press. Any press in between, you could tell if you've pressed it halfway for a while and then pressed it completely down. They have all of this monitoring that they can do on the switch level. And on top of that, they have a special tool where you can pull the switch cap off. Not the cap itself, but the whole switch. What? So if the switch wears out, you can replace the physical portion of it that that has the cookie. You can replace that and put a new one on there. So the benefits here, obviously, they have, you know, the red, blue, copying the cherry designs. These, uh, they react the same way, but they interact with their optical switch down below. If you wanted to have your ASWD keys as reds and the rest of your keyboard as blues, you could pull those out and replace them with red ones. And it works. You can just drop them in. Both of them sound intriguing and expensive. Yeah. I'm not sure about costs, but the bloody keyboards were not terribly expensive. They didn't say they were going to be any more than any other keyboard that was already on the market.
0: Well, it sounds like a name to watch for. I may have to track one of those down just to check it out myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, Bloody also had it for um, they replaced the switches on the mice, so you could have optical...
0: Replaceable switches on the mice. That is definitely worth looking into. Well, it sounds like you uh, had a lot of interesting adventures
1: there. It was a blast. This year, you know, the, the Computex itself was less exciting than, you know, say, eight years ago when I went. Some of it is just the fact that I've been there before, and the show has changed a lot over the years. You wrote
0: a little something about this also, but I would think that there would be more of an evolution.
1: I would think that the show would get better instead <laughs> of worse.
0: That's kind of what I meant. Yeah. So you you think that the show is, uh, at least for your purposes, deteriorated? mm mm-hmm. will Well, do tell.
1: So going back to 2003, 2004, admittedly, I didn't know a lot about trade shows back then. I just knew that I could go here, I could talk to manufacturers, I could see new products, I could feel them. The way that they had their display set up, they had everything on display. It wasn't just like their latest product. It was like their entire product line. So I could go to DFI, for instance, and see every land party board that was currently in production. I could also see some of the OEM ones that they sell to gaming companies, not like video gaming, but you know, gambling gaming companies.
0: Oh, so literally just a plot product, product catalog.
1: Mm-hmm. This show has kind of changed from the product catalog, sort of where a show focused on sales and making connections and how many units do you want to buy to kind of show girls that come around and give away like, Oh, here's a, here's a, a, um, a thumb drive that we're selling, blah, blah, blah. It's gone to just kind of pure entertainment. So if you wanted to see the product catalogs, you have to be invited to like a special suite or something like that, or get the catalog and flip through it because they have it printed. They also have um, like overclocking demonstrations, for instance, at, like G-Scope booth. For the past several years, they've had the OC stage. And it's really just kind of a glorified, we're going to have guys overclocking instead of girls trying to get people to come to our booth.
0: Hell yeah. It's a
1: different audience. To be blunt about it, it's completely pointless for G-Skill to have that OC stage because it doesn't show their memory. They're all using (laughs) G-Skill memory, but it doesn't show how good their memory is, vice versa. But what if they, what if they set a record or something though? That gets the press. It does. And those are the headlines that come out and the ones that they push all the time. But These are the the records that are made by this one overclocker using XYZ motherboard with happens to be using G-skilled memory. Ah, I see. It's kind of an additional sort of thing. So yeah, the show now is more of a, just kind of like an entertainment thing. You can still see the latest products. You can still talk to people, but like Asus, for instance, I have yet to be invited to their little VIP suite. I don't know if they even have one. But based off of how much stuff that they show at their booth, somewhere along the lines, there's like a special press room that has, you know, the marketing people that you can talk to and the latest products that you can test with and stuff like that.
0: Well, Asus has been a top dog for a long time, so I'm sure they're enjoying a bit of a little extra VIP action.
1: Yeah. Well, I know Gigabyte has their VIP suite. They have that at Taipei 101 and they've had that there for, for years. They also have their booth down in Hall 1, which is a classic hall from, you know, 2003, 2004 era, before Nongong was built. And now, after they built that exhibition hall, all of the manufacturers for motherboards and cases and stuff like that all moved out there, except for Gigabyte. Gigabyte's still in Hall 1, completely separated from everybody else.
0: Interesting. Now, you talked a lot about uh, MSI and... Was it the limousines? Was that MSI in your article?
1: Oh, my article? No, that was a gigabyte limo. Ah, the gigabyte limos. Which, you know, 2003, I'm wandering around, like trying to check out the different halls, and then I see a gigabyte limo, and then I go around the corner, gigabyte limo. (laughs) It was just kind of, it was odd to me seeing cars like that. And I didn't stay long enough to see who got in the cars. I just saw them all over the place. I figured, well, they were just a shuttle because... To get from Hall 3 to Hall 1, you'd have to sometimes get on a bus. You could walk it, but it takes a while. So you get on a bus, a shuttle bus, and it takes you around a big loop. So obviously Gigabyte was looping people elsewhere, and they needed a car for that. But I didn't see ASUS shuttles. I didn't see MSI limos. They used the helicopter on the roof, right? Oh, probably. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Something like that. Well, it just goes to show how things have grown and how your participation has grown also. And I think the reason I was getting MSI and Gigabyte confused is you had a separate story about those two that you were telling me about offline. Did you want to bring that up a little
1: bit? Oh, well, yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, the, <laughs> the, this is just kind of a funny little anecdotal story about you know how manufacturers play things close to their chest, but if they use the same factory to build their PCBs or something like that, people at the company tend to talk. So, for instance, um, Gigabyte on their new G1 motherboards, they have these metal uh, metal braces around the PCI Express slots, which are soldered to the PCB. So they add strength to that that connection. But you really have to try to break a PCI Express slot on a motherboard.
0: Well, yeah, you're on a trampoline with an unsecure video card, right? Yeah,
1: something like that. So. They thought, hey, well, we'll just add this little metal brace around it and we can reinforce that. And it might also shield it so you get better signal integrity, blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, and it's, it's one more box to check, right? It's a marketing thing.
1: Well, on the MSI Godlike, they also had these metal strips on there, but they didn't look like they were soldered to the PCB. It just looked like they were wrapped around the PCI Express slot. And they claimed that, oh, well, this is supposed to reinforce the PCI Express slot so it doesn't break. I'm like... Normally the plastic part comes away from the board before it breaks. It's not like right off
0: the pins. Yeah.
1: It's (laughs) not like they're going to just disintegrate. So I just thought it was funny how somewhere along the lines, somebody, I don't know who, if it was MSI or Gigabyte came up with the idea. And then another company comes in to, Hey, here's our board design. And they say, Oh, well here, what about we can add these? Cause we just, you know, made a special die for these things. Okay, sure. Add those. Same with, like, um, like around Sandy Bridge time, every motherboard at the same time came with a separated section for the audio controller. I remember that. Yeah. They all did it at the exact same time. So, somewhere, somebody talked and they said, hey, well, <laughs> this is what we want to do with the board. Oh, it's a small world. It is, and it's very competitive. I mean, we've talked about that in the past. It's particularly
0: noticeable, I think, in case design.
1: Yeah, that was another story, which I don't want to dive in too much, but was it? Case Labs accused Thermaltake of stealing their case design, made a big stink out of it. A lot of the YouTubers were making a really, really big deal out of it. They love the drama. And it's what gets views, right? Thing is, six, seven, eight, somewhere around that years ago, Cooler Master brought up the same thing with Thermaltake. They made a huge, big press release out of it. It was a very exciting week in the news. <laughs> but they pretty much copied stamp by stamp, one of their cases and then just rebranded it.
0: Yeah, that's been happening for years with very subtle variations. I mean, I've got a case in my closet right now that's a copy of a Kingwin three window mm-hmm. and I love it, but you know, it's not a Kingwin.
1: No, it's not. And there's always something that they change. Like they either use a uh, thinner metal or a different paint on the inside of it. They might change the shroud slightly, change, oh, blue LED, red LED, you know, something like that. There's always something to make it different so that they feel like it's their design. Oh well, yeah. They got to have something different anyway, so they can call it their own. And a lot of it is again, going back to the manufacturer, you go to a stamping uh, factory and they, the dies, are really, really expensive. So if they have a die that will go and form a three drive, three and a half inch with slidable trays, Hey, get that one. And then we don't have to pay for the tooling. <laughs> yeah. There goes your design fee. Mm -hmm. Just pull it off the shelf.
0: (laughs) Just pull it off the shelf. Put your own name on it and hope no one notices. And there are so many, especially case designs out there, that maybe you don't. I mean, how many of us go out and actually see two, three cases physically next to each other to compare?
1: No. It's rare. A lot of times it's banned over a couple of years, so somebody's already forgotten about it.
0: Well, one of the other things about the show that you briefly mentioned, and it might be fun just to finish with, is the attendance of the editors and some of the folks
1: that you saw there. And I figured I'd give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that and call out your buddies. Oh yeah. So also in the article, you know, going, this is related to that. I'd mentioned that the attendance was down in terms of editors. Like in the past, for instance, I would always see somebody from the tech report. I would see those guys. I'd see a lot of familiar faces from CES at Computex. This year, nobody. Nobody. I saw a lot of Tier 1 sites. You know, we talk about Antech, We talk about um, Tech Power Up, Tom's Hardware. And these are kind of global presence sort of hardware websites, guys with editors in different countries. They were there. They had their own little scheduled agendas that they were going and talk to. I didn't see any Tier 2 sites that I recognized at least. These would be like the large websites that have pretty much domestic sort of editors, not really international editors. Folks that are making a living at least. Yes. I didn't see those guys. You know, it would be like Hot Hardware. They'd be Tech Report. Of course, you know, the the lines blend a little bit. (laughs) Of course. However they want to see themselves, but they weren't there. And then there was a lot of Tier 3 sites, and I would consider Hardware Asylum in the Tier 3. We also had uh, Custom PC Review with Sam Chen. He was there. He was good. Uh, I saw a couple of them from from the European nations. And these are people that we meet at after parties. And, hey, I recognize you, and I might forget your name, but, you know, it's like... <laughs> it's we a knew- small world. Yeah. There was a, quite a few of those sites there. And these are the people that are not necessarily struggling, but they want to keep their their presence known and shake the hands of these people that are going to be giving us hardware and try to make those deals. And then there was three or four YouTubers, ah. which I don't... You know, and of course, you know, the guys might disagree, but I see the YouTube crowd as being more of a kind of multimedia marketing instead of being tech hardware reporting or tech editors. And the reason I say that is because they're there to make a video for one of their sponsors. They're there to make a video of a factory tour and then try to sell it to the company so they can get some money as part of an effort that they are providing them with a service. And, you know, the, the benchmark everybody uses is Linus Tech Tips. You know, he started out doing reviews for NCIX or whatever it is in in Canada. Same with some of the guys here. They work for for Newegg. Same same sort of deal. Well, he's making a living doing videos for as video reviews and also videos for manufacturers about a new product that they're launching. And you make a healthy living off of that. But it's not necessarily reporting on what capacitors are being used on the G1 gaming board that's coming out next month.
0: Yeah, it seems like all the video reviews tend to be a little bit too high level. Mm-hmm. And I know that all sites get kind of accused of using similar formats for reviews because you you get comfortable in a rhythm. But I've seen a lot of those video reviews and it just seems like more fluff than substance. But
1: yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that's changing. Yeah, and it, it is what it is. Uh, there's a lot of manufacturers that are... Focusing solely on videos because they figured their audience—the people buying products or watching the video reviews—oh, I see that. Yeah. There could be some truth to that, but you know, as a as a hardware reviewer that knows a few things, I see that and it's like it's almost too high level. But then again, I might not be in the right frame of of thinking. And and truth be told, you know, these guys that do YouTube videos. They get their research from written websites for the most part. Yeah, that is true too. They may not may not be coming to Hardware Asylum to get their information, but you know they troll around to some of the sites like an Antech and hardware hardware.
0: Yeah, know. and they're getting their talking points also. So I mean it's a lot about what's the hand that feeds you, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what works for them. This is what works for me. And you know, I get asked all the time, why don't you do videos? And it's like I tell everyone I have a face for radio. <laughs>
0: Well, and to be honest, the the amount of time that it takes is pretty comparable. Mm-hmm. Well, if we have to leave this particular trip on a note, what would you say?
1: I would say Computex, I love going. The relevance is not always there for me. You know, given another, another year, I would probably go again.
0: Well, check out the coverage on the website. There are a lot of articles this year that introduce lots of different product lines. And let us know if we've missed anything. We'd love to cover it in a future podcast. And we'll see you then.
1: For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Google or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2015. Thanks for listening.